It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Did you know that one in 54 children are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder? Often a child diagnosed with it will be prescribed a complex cocktail of medications. The challenge is determining the best treatment plan while taking into account drug interactions, and side effects. Thanks to advances in testing, there is a way to take into account a patient's personal genetic information, which reduces the painful process of trial and error. The GenoMind Professional PGX Express Test is a cheek swab that looks at 24 genes related to mental health treatments. It can identify which medications may be less likely to cause side effects and which medications may be more likely to be effective for the patient, subsequently aiding in prescription choices as well as how a patient metabolizes medications for dosing guidance. Today's special guest, Amy Edgar, APRN, CRNP and FNP-C, she's a nurse practitioner, uh, founder and director of the Children's Integrated Center for Success, which offers services for children with autism, is here to discuss how genes involved in brain growth and development play a role in autism, which, why symptoms and signs of autism vary from person to per- person, how the PGX Express Test can make management more simple. The ways in which early intervention can make a difference in understanding autism milestones. Good morning, Amy. It's so nice to have you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, So let's start with your own situation and what got you interested in focusing so much of your practice, your professional life towards autism? Well, I've been a, a medical professional for almost 30 years. So um, I knew early on that I wanted to uh, work with kids and especially around mental health, kind of behavioral health issues. In two, the year 2000, um, I had my second child, Mary, who um, was diagnosed with an atypical form of of autism. Um, I knew pretty early on that something was up. As a developmental specialist, I had questions about some of the things I was seeing, but it was really after, um, I think she was probably 12 months old, that we uh, were able to get an evaluation. And so um, I live all things autism. I think of it as kind of on both sides of the conversation. I have a a practice uh, in Allentown. We have about 6,000 families in care. Um, And so I'm working with families uh, on the provider side of uh, of the equation and also coming home and living the life of a mom with uh, someone with autism. What is atypical autism? Well, I use that term because uh, to describe her symptoms, her presentation, because she doesn't really fit any box. And if you look at the, you know, very specific diagnostic criteria, she has some features that look very much like autism and then others that don't look anything like autism. So that would be a situation where, um, Atypical autism would be the descriptor. Um, their autism spectrum disorder is a wide presentation of symptoms. And so, you know, you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Um, often that's the, the uh, way in which 
people with autism talk about it. You don't know me because I have autism. Um, so it's complex, lots of different symptom presentation, but we do have some diagnostic guidelines that tell us, yes, this is on the, you know, this person's on the spectrum. So what is autism exactly? <laughs> well, so it is a uh, complex neurodevelopmental disorder. Uh, we know that it is uh, brain-based. Uh, we know that there are genetic components that contribute. We also know that there are other factors that can contribute to the development as well, um, including some environmental factors. So uh, it's complex. Uh, it really is uh, tracked based on development and developmental symptoms. So um, it's common that uh, at birth, a baby who goes on to be diagnosed with autism is uh, not apparently autistic at birth. And it's over time as uh, the child's brain develops and you start to see the differences that it becomes more clear that autism spectrum disorder is present. So what would be, so you noticed it in your daughter very early. What did you notice? Um, <laughs> I, I noticed that the way that she moved her tongue was, unique and I had really only seen that kind of tongue movement um, in someone who had a muscular dystrophy disorder. So um, she had a, a lot of motor differences very early on. She had uh, difficulty uh, with feeding. She had a hard time coordinating the motor movements to, um, you know, to take in fluid and not choke. Um, she would tire very quickly. Um, so it was really those things that I noticed very early that uh, kind of raised a red flag for me. Uh, and even, even, you know, in the profession that I'm in and all that I know when I went to um, uh, her provider, who was a wonderful person, I adore, uh, I, you know, I adored the practice. All the providers were amazing. You know, when I said, hey, look at her tongue, what's going, you know, what do you think? This is kind of weird or, you know, I'm noticing these things. Um, the message back was always, you know, oh, you know too much. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's, you know, development is a wide range and, you know, um, so it was, you know, even, even with all I knew, it took us a year to get her evaluated formally. Yeah, I mean, it's, that sounds like a very young age, but because you're, this is your work, you would recognize these things. So I guess you were trying to rule out other things, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the most exciting things that's happening in the world of uh, neurodevelopmental disorders um, are, is the kind of explosion in science uh, and also technology. So there are... Um, uh, medical, uh, they're kind of digital or virtual medical devices um, or uh, technology that can use machine learning to read facial expressions or eye contact or, um, you know, uh, the kind of key metrics that would indicate uh, a child who has autism very, very early, you know, in the first year of life. Um, one, you know, in fact, just got approved um, to advertise. They're ready to go to market soon. So I'm really excited about all of the um, science and technology that's going to kind of converge on identifying very early and then um, intervening very early. Well, that sounds wonderful. That's, that's a huge breakthrough. Is this something that children are born with or they develop? So they're born with the um, either the genetic differences. Um, there are not aren't, aren't so many structural differences identified. So you can't do an fMRI or an MRI and you know diagnose autism. Uh, the brain of someone with autism looks typical um, on imaging, at least at this point. Um, so it's definitely something that you're born with and uh, is demonstrated or developed across time. Hmm. Okay. And are there factors that, um, that you're aware of that can 
cause it to develop? Well, right now, and it, it's super exciting because of the, the kind of explosion of science that's happening right now. So in the last, I would say, 15 years, um, there have been over 100 genes identified that look like they are highly um, suspect in terms of uh, creating autism and or, you know, uh, creating the, the disorder. So the um, genes that are involved are genes that are either look, uh, responsible for the communication between brain cells um, and uh, some of them control the expression of other genes around proteins. And, and so we know of 102 or over 100 that look like they are strongly connected. Um, some of the changes are single, you know, uh, single parts of the, of the gene that are changed. Others have multiple parts of the gene that are changed. Um, and there's no exact recipe at this point. Um, so what I mean by that is you can have uh, 10 gene changes of the genes that have been identified and meet criteria for autism spectrum disorder. You can have all, well, it'd be unlikely that you'd have all 102, but <laughs> you could have... <laughs> 20, 30, you know, but there's no minimum number or recipe of genes yet that says, oh, yes, this is definitely autism. We're getting closer. Um, you know, there's a, a company right now that is uh, working on a cheek swab that is specific to genes that would predict autism. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're getting closer to being able to meet that threshold. That's amazing. When when has the term autism coined? Is this something that was coined a long time ago or more in maybe the last 40 or, you know, 30 or 40 years? Well, it's, it's interesting because I think um, people are, their awareness of autism is, is much higher given the increase in prevalence. And so there's this kind of myth that autism um, is a new thing or, you know, that it's just uh, ex exponentially exploding. Um, and that's not, not really true. Um, there are uh, multiple kind of people uh, in history identified as having recognized autism. Asperger's, Hans Asperger's is, some, is a name that people um, would connect because Asperger's is a, has kind of made its way into the popular culture. Um, it really was uh, around 1940 that um, the features of autism were described in the medical literature. So going back to 1940 um, is, uh, you know, kind of where the time clock starts in terms of what we recognize as autism spectrum disorder today. Do you consider this to be a disorder? You know, and the reason I ask you that is because um, I've had people on my show who um, talk about how these children are really kind of the children of the next generation and how we are looking, them, looking at them as disordered when really they are differently abled. So what are your feelings about that? Well, so I love the way that you um, describe that. And I um, am very much uh, in touch with the community of adults with autism. So, um, I, you know, actually on social media, uh, there's some great, if you, if you want to get insight from adults living with, with um, neurodivergence is really kind of how to talk about it. Uh, the uh, hashtags on Twitter are actually autistics, <laughs> which is okay. um, full of information. Yeah, lots and lots of people um, on social media describing their experience every day. Neurodivergent Rebel is another one um, to follow on Twitter. But the, uh, the experience of people who are living in uh, neurodivergent brains, and that, and that term was coined... Um, I, I'm trying to remember his name. He wrote Neurotribes. Uh, Stephen, it'll come to me. Anyway, um, that term was coined, Steve Silverman, um, was coined by Steve Silverman looking at 
evolution and the development of differently abled brains. And um, I think that is a really important shift in thinking about um, the wide spectrum that is brain development and human uh, presentation. So I agree that there is a um, that, that there is there are different abilities. This is a differently abled scenario that the human race, uh, you know, across all presentations um, is rich and deep and vast, and I celebrate all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the fact that we are seeing, you know, you quoted at the beginning of um, the show, the statistics, you know, one in 54 kids. Now, that's one in 54 children who have been diagnosed with autism. That doesn't address, uh, you know, kids who, are, who don't have access to diagnostics, who are uh, not able to, to access care. Um, the uh, other piece of that is that doesn't include other neurodevelopmental situations that um, would also be considered kind of uh, neurodiversity. So ADHD uh, is, a, is another example. And so when you look at the diversity of humans, it's really hard to point to anyone and say, oh, this is the right way to be. <laughs> and yeah. so I really believe in the approach that we take at my practice, which is, you know, my job is to understand you, this human in front of me, and um, really describe strengths and weaknesses um, and help you be successful in whatever way you're looking to be successful. And I think that paradigm shift in the last 10 years has been really significant. Um, And so I would agree with the idea that neurodivergence is Um, the way to think about this, or neurodiversity, I would say, Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, over time, we're going to get better and better at recognizing strengths and describing um, humans based on uh, what they can do versus what they can't. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, I'm happy to hear that. I really hope that 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 does happen, because there are so many children and adults walking around with autism and they are many of them, maybe most of them, I don't know because I'm not an expert on this, um, are really brilliant in a specific area. Do well, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I, I was just going to add that the, um, the areas of brilliance are not uh, all identified by traditional methods of testing and there are um, real strengths that, People with uh, that people who are uh, neurodivergent uh, bring to the uh, workplace and also to social settings. So um, you know there are skills and qualities. I think about hyperfocus as one where um, it really serves you well if you are. Uh, doing something technical or having to remember patterns or um, thinking about uh, building something. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, a level of skill that comes with uh, the brain of someone with autism um, that is highly valued in the workplace, you know. And there are companies that are specifically, uh, their their work is to recruit uh, for uh, people on the spectrum. So Special Stern is a company that I'm aware of that, you know, their mission is to find jobs that really value the strengths of people with neurodiversity. Um, that's important because 80% of people who are diagnosed with autism are unemployed. Oh, well. What about educated? Do they, do, do most of them get higher education um, or not really? Well, I think that it's hard to, when you say most of them, because the spectrum is so wide, um, it is hard to point to uh, a specific trend. So you really have to think about um, what what are the variables that lead to success in higher education. 
right? And so we know that there are differentiating factors that make someone more likely to be successful um, in higher education. And one of those is the ability to um, read, so verbal uh, processing, and um, the other is the ability to uh, remember, so short and long-term memory, working memory, and processing speed. These are all kind of variables that go into predicting or helping someone be successful in higher education. One of the challenges that I see is that, and, and my daughter's a great example of this. So um, she is, uh, she graduated high school and she is, she did a semester of college. Unfortunately, her freshman uh, fall semester was COVID at the, in the year of COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, so she, she really wanted the moving on to campus experience. We were lucky enough that her school um you know, had students on campus with a lot of restrictions, but it really, that setting was not great for her. So um, she didn't go back in the spring. But, you know, the issue is that, excuse me, our systems, traditional systems, are not set up to support uh, learning differences. So my daughter's fully capable of completing um, a bachelor's degree at an academic institution. She may not do it in four years. She may not do it in the way that, um, you know, the kind of uh, traditional student, you know, would do that. She might need different kinds of supports or environmental uh, modifications. So that's really what I see happening is that, you know, kids come uh, out of uh, high school and they have skills, they have talents, they have um, sometimes just, you know, raw capability, IQ of 140, for example. Um, and if they're not supported, they're not successful. And so it's it's hard to say how many people ultimately graduate, you know, um, uh, with a degree in higher education for that reason. Okay. Good answer. I get that. <laughs> is, um, <laughs> is, is flat affect, affect a... Um, a part of Asperger's? I mean, not Asperger's, but autism spectrum disorder? Um, Well, so there's a social-emotional element to the criteria for diagnosing autism. And uh, flat affect is, you know, affect is the kind of physical expression of an internal emotional state. So um, if I'm reading someone's affect, Uh, or evaluating someone's affect, and they tell me they're happy, I should be able to see that in their um, expression. And so when someone is described as having a flat affect, it means that they really are not physically expressing their internal mood state. So in that sense, you could say that, you know, the, I, I would say, uh, that affect, as it relates to autism, is more um, misaligned affect, <laughs> meaning that you know what's being uh, expressed uh, non-verbally may not be may not match the internal mood state, um, and flat or lack of presentation can be part of that. Okay. Um, so you talked about how genes are involved in the brain growth and development. Um, and we also talked about why symptoms and signs of autism vary from person to person. Um, let's talk about the PGX express test uh, and how it makes management of treatment simpler. Sure. The, um, so there's actually two tests and I'm really uh, happy to talk about both because I believe okay. that the, direct-to-consumer test, which is the mental health map, um, and and that doesn't require a prescription. So there are um, ways of getting information about your um, kind of genetic predispositions, and the mental health map addresses it in kind of seven different areas. Uh, that's direct to consumer. You don't need a, a prescriber, and uh, you, I think they I think they sell it um, on you know their website, but also uh, places like Amazon. You can find it. You know in in uh, I don't know about Target or places like that, but certainly on Amazon. And 
that test is really important and can be really helpful because the genes that are identified are very, some of them, many of them are similar to the genes in the PGX test that requires a prescription. Um, and those genes and the interpretation of gene changes really can give you uh, just a wealth of insight and information about yourself or in, you know, if you're purchasing it for your child, about your child. So we know that um, there are certain brain systems that uh, impact certain uh, human functions like sleep um, or the experience of stress, predispositions for anxiety. And we know that, that there are gene associations with um, these human functions. And so both the PGX test and the mental health map identify genes um, if you have changes, so identify the changes and then really provide information, the translation about, okay, so what does this mean in your life? Um, beyond that, excuse me, beyond that, um, there are uh, lots of tools uh, and, and ideas about how to support changes or predispositions. So either you're you know, mitigating symptoms, so making symptoms better, or even working on um, preventing a problem before it happens. And, you know, I, I want to point out that you can't prevent autism. There's, that's, not, that's not true. Uh, you can prevent symptoms from progressing. You can prevent some, some symptoms from, you know, even preventing. If you understand and, do, and, and deploy the right solutions early on. So PGX and Mental Health Map both give parents and really anyone who does it um, insight and information about how they are built, how their brain is built, how their specific predispositions um, affect, you know, their their life in some really important functional areas. This is so fascinating. How important is getting a diagnosis for the overall success of those who are on the spectrum? Oh, you asked the best question. <laughs> you asked the hard question. <laughs> so I, I would think, you know, I'm going to, it, it depends on how you're thinking about it. So I'm going to offer a couple of different perspectives in terms of answering okay. that question. Okay. So so if you're the parent of a child who, who is not failing to make progress, has missed developmental milestones and is not, um, you know, progressing in the way that, that uh, you would expect. It's really um, important to try to understand that because we know that early intervention yields better outcomes. So the sooner we recognize it, the sooner we can do something with it, the better the outcomes. And so from a parent's perspective, that, you know, that the earliest you can understand um, the, the better. Um, from people that I know, adults living with um, autistic adults who did not, weren't diagnosed until much later in life, so they were diagnosed with autism as adults, uh, getting a diagnosis for them, uh, they describe it as, you know, kind of putting their life in perspective or finally having a framework or a way of understanding why their experiences in the world seem to be so different from other people's. So in that regard, um, you know, just based on um, conversations that I've had and people uh, that I follow, um, it, it's very important. It's part of creating a sense of, of identity. And um, in terms of uh, accessing support services, you know, our, our healthcare system is built around diagnoses. <laughs> and so if you are going to access services for um, the support of, you know, your child's development, um, for services for school or support in school, then a diagnosis is often the primary driver of access to to services mm -hmm. okay thank you that was that was a very comprehensive answer i appreciate <laughs> that <laughs> you know i'm doing this show because i think that if we can 
um, eliminate the stigma associated with having autism. Um, some parents or many parents might be more likely to want to recognize it because with, with some parents, it's an ego issue. They just don't want to believe that their child can be different. Um, and so they push the child to be quote unquote, uh, you know, mainstream and that child has a hard time set, so, which is really unfair to children. I think, to, you know, to do that, to not be able to recognize how they're built uh, and how they think. So it's important to get rid of the stigma, I believe, don't you? Absolutely. You know, I, I think I'm, I said before that when I, when I think about humans and the kind of wide and vast presentation of a human being, um, all humans have value. All human being has value. And the idea that one is better than another or that one is more important than another, um, I personally and as a provider take issue with. So I do believe that stigma is um, something that needs to be addressed uh, systemically, you know, culturally, from a, a global perspective. Um, autism doesn't just happen in the United States. So, um, you know, how we go about doing that is, um, well, the way that I go about doing that uh, is to uh, provide information but also to uh, help people think about humans and human beings, you know, as the way you are constructed, the way you're built, who you are. There's only one you. There's no other one exactly like you. And uh, understanding you in every way you can helps you take advantage of talents, strengths, and also recognizing weaknesses um, that can be supported. So, you know, it's, for parents, I, I have a I have a poster in my practice um, that is uh, you know really speaking to the issue of what parents go through when um, they realize that their child has developmental differences is not you know tracking along the expected trajectory, and it's this idea that. You know, there is this child that you've imagined, and that is often different than the child you receive. And, you know, I think about it in terms of I <laughs> I played soccer, um, I love soccer, um, my husband played soccer, and we expected our kids to play soccer, and <laughs> neither one of them wanted to play soccer. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I I had soccer cleats for my oldest daughter before she was born. And so there was a part of accepting this little human doesn't like soccer. This little human (laughs) is different than me and doesn't want to play soccer. And so I, you know, had a moment where I was like, oh, wow, I didn't get a soccer player. I thought I'd get a soccer player. (laughs) Um, so you can extend that in all directions, you know, oh, I thought I'd have a boy, I had a girl, I thought I'd mm-hmm. have a child with black hair and green eyes, I didn't. Right. Um, <laughs> and so there's this, like, you know, idealized child that you've imagined, and then the one that you got right in front of you. And there is a part of um, process that happens where you you know, recognize the identified child and accept like, hey, that's not the one I got. This is the one I got. And then value and appreciate all the things about the one you got. So I didn't get soccer players, but I got dancers. I'm not a dancer. <laughs> I became a dance mom <laughs> for a short period of time. Oh, right? my gosh. And I know what. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just yes. in, in that process that I grew, right, I grew because I became a dance mom and went to recitals year after year and love everything about dance now. And I would (laughs) never have found that on my own. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with um, two sisters in a house where women ruled. And when I had a son, I just had this stereotypical 
belief of what a son was. You know, I just thought he'd be into sports and, you know, um, come in and throw his dirty socks on the floor. And <laughs> I had this right. whole image. And I got this child who was not uh, sports oriented at all, was very neat and orderly, very artistic, um, very smart in very specific areas, but not at all what I pictured. And um, easier for me, actually, because I didn't really know what to do with a boy who's into sports because I, <laughs> I never had been into them. So, so I get it. Yeah, we really do, you know. And as somebody who works with uh, narcissistic abuse survivors, many of whom have um, suffered this in childhood, myself included, um, the, the narcissistic parent does not recognize the individuality of their children. Mm-hmm. So um, it creates a serious problem for adults who you know, try to they, when they reach adulthood and they're floundering because they have none of the skills that they mm-hmm. need to live, you know. I mean, yeah, they can eat and breathe, but as far as coping and, and setting boundaries and learning who they are in relation to others, it's completely missing. So, um, you know, it's wonderful when parents really do recognize their child for who they are and uh, and just promote that. Yeah, it it seems like such a simple concept, and yet, uh, you know, it's probably one of the most challenging uh, things for all parents. So I don't think this is, you know, unique to the parent of, of a child with autism. Um, recognizing the difference between yourself and your child, um, recognizing uh, you're letting go of expectations that you will be the same. You know, I can think of a million ways that that, that happens. Um, energy level is one of my favorites. Um, you know, I talk to, to parents about this uh, in practice a lot. You can have a child and parent who are radically different in terms of their energy level. So you can have a very low energy a parent and a very high energy child and just that misalignment or mismatch of energy levels leads to all kinds of misunderstanding um oh, yeah. and and it's not you know it's 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 not a um the kid is bad and you know always into something and always on the go and the parent is calm and you know, uh, not running around. It, it, it's that they each have different energy levels. And if you can come to appreciate the other's energy level, you can find mutual understanding. So I, that is an example in my family. I am a very high energy person. My daughter's, well, one of them, is very low energy. And so the family joke was we would fight every time we tried to go on vacation because I would want to take bikes and swim and ride bikes and go for hikes and be outside all the time. And their version of a vacation was to lay on the beach under an umbrella and be left alone. (laughs) That's mine. That's mine. (laughs) So you can imagine, you know, we try to to have a family vacation and they would be miserable if it was my agenda and I would be miserable if it was theirs. So we had to come to terms with our differences, appreciate them as just how we're made, and accommodate so that we could go on vacation and have a great time, not be miserable. Right, right. So true. <laughs> so true. You know, I have, when you were talking about your daughter and how her tongue moved differently and and her swallowing um, was was different than you expected it mm-hmm. or you just thought something was an issue. I have a um a relative who had that um an eating issue for many years. Uh this 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 child had to go to eating clinics. Um he uh could he ate Cheerios for many, many years and all he would eat was yogurt and Cheerios for many, many years. And it was very difficult for him to swallow. But the other thing mm-hmm. is that as he grew older, he has this very, very flat affect. And mm-hmm. um, you never, ever 
see any emotion. You may see anger, frustration, or um, uh, mainly frustration and anger uh, very easily, but you never see anything but this flat affect. So, and I'm really curious if that could be, you know, perhaps maybe he is on the spectrum and never identified. Well, so there's two uh, functional categories that are used to identify or um, diagnose autism. And the um, restrictive repetitive behaviors are, uh, that's one category. And so that's where really the motor um, uh, issues are described. So things like um, hand flapping, um, rocking, the way in which someone uh, is using their vision, so looking out of the corner of their eye or um, bringing things up to eye level, um, exploring things uh, from a sensory perspective that is, um, you know, not typical. So licking things, tasting things, smelling things that, um, you know, normally at a developmental stage you wouldn't do that. Okay. Um, and so that's really where a lot of the, um, you know, the the kind of I think of them as the typical symptoms of autism. The ones that if you ask someone at the grocery store, hey, what's what's autism? They would recognize, you know, those those uh, features. Right. Um, the the other side is social communication and communication. So there's a, um, I'm trying to remember how many variables in the the gold standard um, test for autism is uh, a play-based tool called ADAS um, and uh, I I am trained to uh, deliver that protocol and, and do frequently so I'm trying to remember all of the different domains mm-hmm. that are assessed. Um, so in the social um, affective uh, domain of that that test or the criteria for autism, uh, there is a restriction. So what you're a restriction of affect. So what you're describing is you know a, a an ability to express one or two emotions, but not a full range of emotions. Yes. Um, there's also reciprocity. So um, is the person interested as interested in you as you are in them or are they no demonstrate an interest in you yeah no and that reciprocity is yeah Mm -hmm. that reciprocity is a key feature um the uh you know ability to extend a conversation so uh, i think of it when i'm in the testing protocol I, i imagine that i'm you know, throwing a ball back and forth with a kid, um, and it's a conversation ball. So, you know, hey, I'm going on vacation next week. Have you ever been on vacation? Yeah, I went on vacation. Uh, I went to the beach. Where did you go on vacation, right? That that traditional kind of back and forth conversation mm-hmm. and extending on a conversation um, is uh, often impaired um, in someone with autism. So they have a hard time thinking of the next thing to say or to how to mm. extend or expand the conversation. Um, you know, so these are all the, uh, the the features that we're looking for in diagnosing autism. There is okay. definitely a motor component. And when you look at autism spectrum disorder, um, there are, uh, you know, varying levels of uh, motor involvement. There's also uh, motor involvement with, uh, a, you know, a lot of different neurodevelopmental disorders, including ADHD. So that motor component is something that um, is identified in the literature and from multiple disciplines. We know it exists, but it's also not something that is, uh, often uh, thoroughly evaluated. Uh, so you can have some motor differences that don't rise to the level of, you know, hand flapping, but are still consistent with a diagnosis of, of autism. So that's why the emphasis in the scientific community is on early identification and really getting it right. So standard testing protocols, genes, really really trying to get to a point where we can say, yes, these are all the features and this is autism, or no, you know, these features are lacking, this is not autism, it's something else. And, okay. and we're not 
we're not fully there yet. We're we're way further down that road than uh, we were when my daughter was born, but we're we're still not. It's still not perfect. Mm. So I have to ask this question because this is something that a lot of people think, and I'm not really sure what the answer is. But um, you know, some say that uh, vaccinations are something that causes this to develop in children. What is your feeling on that? Well, so I have, again, I'm going to speak from kind of different perspectives. So uh, there is no evidence in the medical community from medical science that um, cites vaccine as a cause for autism. So the studies that were, you know, identified out of the UK uh, probably 15 years ago now have all been debunked, retracted, and there's been no study that that was able to find uh, vaccination as a cause for autism. Um, you know, with that said, I think that there are um, certain conditions in uh, overall brain function and functioning that can contribute to the um, exacerbation of symptoms. And, and what I mean by that is um, when you have, I, I'll use, again, I'll use my daughter as an example. Um, my daughter, when she has a cold or a viral infection, it has a significant impact on her behavior. And, and I don't mean, you know, she doesn't feel good, she's kind of cranky. I mean, um, her processing speed uh, speeds way up, so way faster. Um, her ability, her attention goes way down. Um, her sensory uh, experiences are really heightened. And, um, you know, the, the, what's happening is the inflammation or the impact of the infection on her brain. And as someone with autism, it is affecting her differently than someone who does not have autism. So I do think that anything uh, that we're talking about, you know, from food to environmental exposure to toxins to, um, you know, any of those, so those factors are, are called epigenetic factors. So the factors around the genes that have an impact on the expression of the genes. And we know that there is a connection between epigenetic factors and all kinds of, of brain um, symptoms. So vaccines, and it's been studied widely, vaccines do not cause autism. There is the possibility that something that does not cause worsening of symptoms in one person might in another. And that's really where the work is focused right now, understanding what does inflammation do on symptoms and what are the kind of variables that can cause inflammation, you know, um, and trigger worsening symptoms. So that's, gotcha. that's the best I have right now based on the mm -hmm. science as it stands today. So um, I think it's really important, especially in a time of, of coronavirus, to think about, you know, I have seen kids who were uh, symptomatic or sick with coronavirus who had really bad um, effects, longer-term effects, um, you know, brain-based impact. Um, mm -hmm. There's that, you know, long COVID kind of scenario where, People are uh, initially recovering from the, the infection, the virus, and having significant neurological symptoms, brain fog, um, difficulty sleeping. I think the, the latest that, that I read, and this is more an adult population, however, I'm seeing it clinically in kids as well, um, something like 20 to 40% of people post-COVID have some sort of neurological impact. So, you know, it's always about the risk benefit and, you know, what, what is um, most likely to promote the uh, successful outcome. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, 
several years ago, after having a very bad flu, I developed a, um, a neuropathy of the vagus nerve uh, in my throat, near, mm. you know, how it affected my throat. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that it can change, um, change the body in those ways, you know, and I still am dealing with that injury today. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I really, uh, did not want to take this vaccine because I don't want to introduce, I don't want to create any more. I know I'm not introducing the, the, the thing into me, but I just don't want to create any more issues than I already have. So I just stayed away from people. <laughs> well, and yeah, I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, um, so in March, um, during the mandatory shutdowns, I, I took my practice completely virtual. So, we haven't actually been we we haven't actually been in the office seeing uh, families since March. Um, I'm surveilling constantly the kind of state of affairs in terms of risk um, because I don't want to be the place that someone gets infected and you know has a, a bad outcome. So we're staying virtual until I feel like we're in a place where we can comfortably get people through the office and, and office visits, you know, we're, we're in a closed room, we're at close quarters and we're playing mm-hmm. with kids. So. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. So and you're loving, and you're loving being at home, aren't you? Or not? Well, you know, I have to say there's yes. And, you know, so um, I actually went into my office the other day and oh my gosh, after being away for a year, I was so happy to be there. I love, the work that we do in real life with kids. I love playing in the floor with Lego. I love coloring <laughs> and talking. I love, you know, there are just some, some aspects of um, working with children that, it, you know, is just, I don't know, it's the, it's the best thing about what I do. And I can only do that in my office. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I miss that terribly. I, I think that the ability to provide access to families, uh, we didn't miss an appointment. We converted from in real life 100% to 100% virtual in three days. And um, we didn't miss an appointment. And we worked really hard to make the virtual experience as engaging as possible. And our goal goal was as engaging as in real life. I don't know that we're there yet. Mm-hmm. We're working hard for it. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a challenge. Yeah. Well, and families really love virtual care uh, because of the, um, the impact on, on transportation to and from the office, getting to and from the office. What if a sibling is sick? What if you're late for work? I mean, there's just all these variables that make going to an appointment in an office challenging mm-hmm. for Absolutely. families with children, you know, and especially mm-hmm. with more than one and young children. And so we've seen, um, you know, a real uh, appreciation from families for lots of the the conveniences of virtual care. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're probably, we're going to go back into the office, but it'll be a much, much smaller percentage and we will stay virtual for, for most of our care. Um, it's been that good for families and, and for providers. So, yeah, that's amazing. I know. I mean, I, um, I see my clients virtually and mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't have an office, so I see everybody virtually or talk to them on the phone, but, um, I love it cause I get to work out of my home and they don't have to leave theirs. You know, it's, it's yeah. really nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, being able to, uh, you know, the video visit is actually um, a huge uh, leap forward because, you know, I remember the first week of seeing people, uh, kids and families, you know, 100% virtual. And it was so much fun because I got to see their bedroom. I got to see their house. I got to see their dog. I got to, yes. you know, they were, it was a show and tell for their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the same was true on my side. They got to see a different kind of um, presentation of me, you know, because you are different when you're at home versus in an office. So right. uh, I've really enjoyed that. And I think our families have, have been, and kids have enjoyed it as well. And 
Uh, so we're sticking with it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, I'll be talking to somebody and all of a sudden I'll see like a cat walk across the screen or I'll, <laughs> or I'll see right. it jump up on the back of the person. I'm like, oh, there's your kitty. <laughs> um, right. And people are letting their dogs in and out, you know, throughout the whole visit. It's <laughs> It's it's yeah. different, but but it's real life. It really is. So um, yeah. if, so in the last few minutes, is there any message that you want to leave us with, or something I didn't cover that you think is important to share? Um, you know, we we talked about the value of um, PGX and mental health map, um, the cheek swab testing for identification of. Um, different gene variants and how you can understand your child. So I would encourage anyone who asks, asks the question, you know, is there something going on with my child, uh, persist to keep asking, ask your pediatrician, ask for a referral for um, an evaluation. Uh, often people think they have to go to a developmental pediatrician to receive a diagnosis for autism. That's not necessarily the case. There are a lot of, that's not the case. There are, uh, freestanding um, organizations who specialize in uh, working with families with kids with autism. And uh, so pursue in any way you can, any avenue you can, the understanding of your child. And then, um, you know, the, the genetic piece can be really important if you decide that medication is the direction that you're going. Um, not just medicine. I would say also there are some genes that indicate, um, you know, a supplement, for example. There's a gene that I, uh, if I see a variant on it, I write a prescription for exercise. <laughs> because <laughs> exercise is actually going to improve cognitive function with that gene change. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, there's, there's a, a lot, there's a tremendous amount of information that's available through that kind of an evaluation, whether it's the mental health map or the PGX test. Um, if medicine is part of the equation, the PGX test is uh, very important as um, the genes are about, about the way you make brain chemistry, but also about the way your liver metabolizes drugs. And there are, um, you know, a, a million ways that that can go wrong and understanding the person that you're prescribing for um, allows you to avoid, uh, you know, a, a significant percentage of those million ways, 80, 90% of those million ways. So um, as a prescriber uh, at this point, it's not something that I, I don't want to prescribe medicine without knowing that about the child. It's, it's that important. So uh, pursue the diagnostics, pursue the evaluation, Pursue it with the idea in mind that you're trying to understand your child, that this isn't about a label or, you know, that your child being broken. This is about understanding how your child is built and, you know, valuing and appreciating uh, the one that you got. And if anybody has any questions for you, is there a way that they can contact you and ask you? Sure. Um, so uh, the practice has a website, and uh, that would be www.everychildeverytime.com. <laughs> our mission is in our website. Um, and uh, there is an information email for the practice. So it's info at, CIC, sorry, info at everychildeverytime.com. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, Amy. Oh, it's this has been so informative. I mean, I think we all have questions about this, and we just, you know, but there's a lot of um, a lot of assumption around autism, and I think it's important that we truly understand it since it is so widespread in our society. So, anyway, I yeah, I thank you so much for bringing this to our attention and educating us in this way. Well, absolutely, and thank you for putting it front and center. Um, education and understanding is the way that we change stigma. So um, yeah. as the mom of someone who has autism, I appreciate everything that you're doing. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. Okay. Have a wonderful day. You as thank well. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 
So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.